श्रीहरी परमानंदम उपदेष्टारमीश्वर व्यापक सर्वोका कारण तम नमाम्यहम Just by the way, this morning when I went for my walk in uh, Central Park, it was a crisp two degrees Celsius, uh, and I saw quite a lot of people. Usually, there's somebody near the imagine the, the memorial there, but there were a lot of people today, and they were singing Beatles songs, and there were flowers. Um, yes, today is the the later. I think Paul is here. He he told me that. Uh, Today is the the day when John Lennon was assassinated when he was shot, right here. Um, from our point of view, one great thing that they did, the Beatles, John Lennon and George Harrison especially, but also the others, the Beatles did was they facilitated the popularization of meditation and Vedanta, you know, by their contacts with the Maharshi Mahesh Yogi. few months back i quoted um george harrison as saying um god realization is the aim of life and there is a science to it if you just look at that quote you'll think that some swami said it but it's actually george george harrison <laughs> and uh, john lennon said in an interview that meditation has made me a better person and i was not bad to begin with <laughs> when malcolm magaridge um raised concerns about meditation some objections about meditation george harrison said the maharshi is a completely happy man and malcolm is not <laughs> so in this faith uh, and what they said was gold standard for millions of teenagers in those days In fact Professor Jeffrey Long who has spoken here um he he was 13 or 14 at that time and he said that I really resonated with with the lyrics of the Beatles songs the, what they expressed about spirituality so they encouraged a whole generation of young Americans and uh, worldwide especially George Harrison yes Aparokshanubhuti we were on verse 65 we had done 64 so we are on verse 65 sarvopi vyavaharastu sarvopi vyavaharastu brahmana kriyate janehi brahmana kriyate janehi ब्राह्मण we do not know it out of ignorance agyanat na vijananti people just don't know it out of ignorance example it gives an example just as when you use a pot or any other utensil made of clay you are dealing with what you're dealing with clay now that because we know it's clay when we use a pot or anything else we also know that we are using basically the material is clay but in this case we are dealing with human beings and animals and plants and uh, um bodies and minds um various events in our life and that's what we think is real we don't see the background reality which is brahman so all activities are done in and through brahman all transactions all relative empirical dealings are done in and through brahman is it that the doubt may be raised 
non-duality is after death, right? You get enlightened, you realize Brahman is the only reality, and only after death, that when the, this experience of duality ceases, you get mukti, liberation. It is called videha mukti, uh, liberation after death. But when you are alive, this is a question, this is not the Advaita position. When you are alive, even if you are an enlightened person, you see difference, right? You see the other clearly in the lives of enlightened persons. Ramakrishna recognized uh, Vivekananda and Adbhutananda and, and uh, the Ganges and the temple of Dakshineshwar. He recognized all these things, the differences. So they recognize difference. They see duality. They experience duality. When he says food, this food goes in the mouth. And toothpaste is for the brushing the teeth. You don't reverse it. You see that they're all different. So you're clearly experiencing difference. You're experiencing duality. You're not experiencing non-duality. So non-duality is not for when you are um, awake to the world. It only might be in deep samadhi or it might be after death maybe. That's a doubt. The answer is no, no, no. The experience of duality does not negate non-duality. We have been studying this. Just because something is um, a necklace and another thing is a, golden, is a bangle does not negate the fact that both of them are gold. And sometimes the same gold. The same gold which has been made into a necklace, later just melted and made into a bangle. It's exactly the same thing. The form is different. The, ne the name is different. Necklace and bangle. And the use is different. Name, form and use differ. But it is the same gold throughout. Non-duality wants to say that. It may be... Um, Good and bad, it may be pleasant or unpleasant, it may be a human being, a known person, an unknown person, a friend, or somebody you don't like particularly. All of that, all these experiences are of the same non-dual Brahman. Even while you, are you seem to be experiencing a duality, the real glory is in knowing it, in recognizing it. The problem is, not that there is duality and after enlightenment there will be non-duality. Rather, enlightenment consists of moving from ignorance to knowledge. So, ajnanatna vijananti. They don't know it out of ignorance. So, ignorance is the problem and knowing it is, uh, is the solution. The Sankhya philosophy says that this, uh, that creation is of not, nothing new. The cause is transformed into the effect. It's the manifestation of the effect in the cause. So, um, when, when you make a pot out of clay, the clay was already there, and the clay is transformed into a pot by uh, the efforts of the potter. It's a manifestation of the, the potentiality of the pot was already there in the clay. And the clay is nothing other than earth, the earth element in the traditional cosmology. The earth element is nothing other than a manifestation in its cause, the water element. And the water element is manifested from the fire element, the fire from the air, and air from space, like that. So it's a manifestation of the cause into the effect. Nothing new is created. And in Advaita Vedanta, what we say is, that all of these manifestations are in consciousness. In our in consciousness, all this is experienced. Who can doubt that? That every experience in our life happens in consciousness. Note one thing. This consciousness in which everything is experienced, the only place that we experience this consciousness is as I myself. As you. You experience consciousness within yourself as the I within yourself. Consciousness is not experienced anywhere else except as that first person experience. I have said this many times earlier that uh, you may say that why consciousness is experienced. Are the, the people sitting around me, are they not conscious? They may be, but you do not experience their consciousness. You only experience their body, their behavior, their language, right? But consciousness is experienced directly as the first person consciousness, as I. 
and the entire universe is manifested in this consciousness. This consciousness is not transformed into the universe. Very big point to make in the making Advaita Vedanta. Just as the rope is not transformed into a snake, the in the mirage or desert is not transformed into water. The, when you see the blue sky, the sky does not get actually transformed into a blue color. It, the blueness appears in the sky. The water appears in the mirage. The universe, the snake appears in the rope. The universe appears in the consciousness, which is, indistinct, is, is indivisible, non-distinct from the I within you. The entire universe appears in this consciousness, which is the I. The I and the universe are not two different things. There's no difference. This, this non-difference, this non-duality is Advaitam. So he's saying, Sarva Vyavahara, all the activities of the world are going on in Brahman. You see Brahman. You're, you're hearing Brahman. You're touching Brahman, smelling Brahman, tasting Brahman. All of this is Brahman. But it doesn't appear like that to us because of ignorance. After we are enlightened, will it change? Will you see something different? Will you hear something different? Will you hear, taste something different? Maybe the food will be a more, more spiritual tasting. No. You will hear, smell, taste all the same things as anybody else does. But you know it that it is Brahman. Just as you realize that all these ornaments are of gold, and when you when you when you're putting on when you, you pick up the bangle and put it on your wrist, what are you actually touching? You're touching gold. There is no object called a bangle apart from the gold. When we say the world is false, you know what Advaita Vedanta means. The world is an appearance, really, because we do not know the background reality, which is Brahman. There is no bangle or necklace apart from the gold. For us, that's not a problem because we know it's gold. We know it's gold and we know in what sense it's a bangle or a necklace. But as far as the universe is concerned, we don't know it's Brahman. So we consider these things to be independent existing entities, a real difference existing as this really different other apart from us. This, this understanding of the universe is false. This is what is meant by Jagat Mithya. The entire universe as non-different from me. Don't get confused. Because the first half of this book was spent by saying, um, Brahman is not the world, not the body, not the mind, uh, not the intellect, and going, uh, separating, separating. And then coming to an understanding that pure consciousness, existence alone is Brahman. Now you will say, Swami, aren't you saying just the opposite now? The process, the first process was a process of analysis, of separation, to identify the reality. Because we do not know the reality, that step is essential. Otherwise, if I say, all this is Brahman, so you say, okay, this is the world. Chairs and tables, people, dogs and uh, cats, and um, uh, all this is Brahman. Misunderstanding. Because we do not know the background reality. I remember once I approached a very saintly learned Swami, one of my uh, very beloved Vedanta teachers who has passed on since. And um, I was saying that I always had this intuition that the truth is right here, but it's covered by a veil, uh, the faintest, the thinnest of veils, as if, if you could just pierce through the veil, you would get to the truth. That kind of intuition. And he said, he peered at me, had this Beautiful smile and twinkling eyes and fluffy white hair, a bit like Einstein. <laughs> he peered at me and he said, why a veil? This is it. I said, this? They were sitting in a room, this window and the tree outside it, this is Brahman? And he looked and he said, not quite. Not, not in the sense I mean it. He said, exact, his exact words were not quite. Thak, let it be. Parehabe, it will happen in its time. <laughs> Let it be. When we have food in our tradition, we chant Brahmar Pranam Brahmahavi, 
ब्रह्माग्नौ ब्रह्मनाहुतम ब्रह्मेवते न गंतव्यम ब्रह्मकर्म समाधिना इट्स फ्रॉम द फोर्थ चैप्टर ऑफ द भगवद गीता वॉट डज इट मीन मेनी पीपल यू नो वेरी डिवाउटली दे बाव डाउन एंड दिस ओ वी आर ऑफरिंग दिस फूड टू ब्राह्मण एस नो नो नॉट रियली देर बी शॉक टू नो वॉट इट मीन्स वॉट दे आर चैंटिंग सो डिवाउटली वॉट इट मीन्स इज द पैराडाइम देयर द वे ऑफ अंडरस्टैंडिंग दिस इज इन एंशंट इंडिया द रिचुअल द रिलीजियस रिचुअल वॉज द फायर सैक्रिफाइस द एंशंट वैदिक पीपल just like modern hindus do puja we're going to do one tomorrow the ancient hindus and and of course even now in india because nothing really dies out in india so <laughs> what they did 5000 years ago they wouldn't be totally out of place if they brought them to 21st century india of course they wouldn't and they would be amazed at the uh, the uh, ubiquitous mobile phones but other than that by they still might find something similar now the fire sacrifice where there was a fire there was a priest and they would pour offerings in a ladle they take a ladle and pour offerings into the fire to the accompaniment of mantras this was the ritual so that's taken as a model this this verse from the gita says the ladle by which you are offering the priest offers the ladle is brahman the offering which is poured into the fire that is brahman the fire is brahman the one who is sacrificing in the fire that person is also brahman the one who sees brahman in all actions will realize brahman the one who sees brahman in all actions will attain to brahman will be liberated so when you are eating an application when you are eating it's the food is brahman the spoon with which you lift up food and put it into your mouth the spoon is brahman the fire in the belly of fire of hunger hunger is compared to fire that is brahman and and you who are offering this sacrifice you are brahman this is the med- meditation that we do or you're supposed to do when you when you chant that mantra and that can be applied to any action so all transactions in the world whether you are driving a car and shopping in the supermarket or working in the computer on your in your office uh, whether um you are being affectionate and loving towards somebody whether you're scolding somebody all of this every activity in the world can be seen as happening in and through brahman this thing sarvopi vyavaharastu brahmana kriyate janai all beings not only the enlightened beings the enlightened beings just know it the rest of us are also doing it Vivekananda says every action can be done in and through God. Do every he says eat to God, talk to God, everything can be done to God. And in fact, what you will say what about immoral activities? It can't be done. You can't offer that to God. It's it your own conscience will stop you from offering it to God. So all activities, empirical dealings are in and through Brahman. That is the meaning. people perform all their act- actions in and through brahman but on account of ignorance they know not you have a question yes if i'm dreaming and if a lion is charging towards me yes if i'm con- if i'm aware that i'm dreaming somehow hmm. then i would be okay with it because i know it's not real and the lion is really inside me and uh, that would be fine there's something different about the awake state where it says a real world lion coming mm. if i just think oh this is just my like my projection i understand that in a dream if you know it's false uh, if you see it in a in a movie or something you're not scared even if you're scared that's also part of the delight of the movie a horror movie or something but in real life if some uh, um, some th- you face danger you tend to run away from it and the opposite also if it's face temptation you will tend to run towards it black friday what what was it called <laughs> yes so you tend to run towards it why because you consider it to it to be real if you did not consider it to be real you would neither be frightened nor would you be tempted i gave the example of um i i, I said this earlier 
uh, many, uh, many, many years ago, there was this, um, the first three-dimensional movie which was shown in India. And we had to go to a hall and you had to put on these, these glasses, special glasses. I mean, on reflection today, if, it, if I think back about it, it was a pretty silly movie. But the special effects made it very attractive to kids. And there you could, there was a particular scene in which a plate of sweets, Indian sweets, including laddu and all, it just pops out of the screen and floats in front of your nose. And the kids, you could see in the hall, they were sort of swiping at it, trying to grab it. But even they who were trying to grab it were trying to do it in fun. They knew, they were not disappointed when they couldn't grab it. They knew it's not there. Because they know it's not there, there's no real tendency towards it. And if there's something terrifying, somebody shoots an arrow from a bow in, in the movie, that was there. And the arrow actually races out of the screen towards you. And people, you know, get shocked. And, but they also know that there's no need to be really scared. Even little children know that. In the real world, it's different. Real world means our waking world. So your question would be, what happens when you're enlightened? When you're enlightened, it would be exactly like that, that you know it, the, you as Brahman are completely unaffected by this. But what about the body? It'll get affected. It's part of the dream. If somebody shoots an arrow at you, unlikely, but if you don't step out of its way, uh, way you're going to get hurt. Remember one thing. Advaita Vedanta does not want you to behave differently or even to speak differently. See, after attending an Advaita class, I who am everything and now I'm... <laughs> you, you, you go to a, a subway and, um, and order a, a sandwich. I who am Brahman and everything and I'm uh, ordering the sandwich which is also Brahman uh, with, with a topping of avocado which is also Brahman from you, oh divine being in the, in the, in the subway restaurant who are also Brahman and I shall pay, pay with Brahman dollars. No, don't, you don't need to speak like that. Actually, the Advaita teachers will tell you, you, you need to go on speaking using language for the purpose it is meant for. Just like everybody else speaks, go on speaking like that. Krishna says that to Arjuna in the Gita. When you are enlightened, look at me, o Arjuna, even being an enlightened being, I work just like the ignorant. Just like them, work, go on act, acting, do the right thing, do your duty, your what, whatever is allotted for this body and mind in this particular uh, situation, you will go on doing that. Use transactional language. Transactional language means the empirical language which we use. He, she, I, you, it, that, good, bad, all of these, which are in-depth meaningless because they are all Brahman. But on the surface they all apply. Like a dramatic performance. An actor knows it's entirely false. That he is not the emperor and that is not the enemy warrior with whom he has to hit him with a play sword on stage. He knows all of that. But he puts forth a wonderful dramatic performance. He doesn't do it very casually and give, give up halfway because it's all false anyway. Then that wouldn't be a good dramatic performance at all. And the Broadway show would flop, you know. So... Yes. Our activities should go on according to what? According to all rules of morality and ethics will be observed. Common sense will be applied in our actions, in our language. So if uh, you're threatened, take necessary means to protect yourself. If you're tempted, take necessary means to re resist that temptation, knowing full well within that I, as Brahman, am not affected at all. Not, I mean, not just convincing yourself that way. You have to really make a breakthrough and see that it is so. When you see that it is so, you can still go on doing everything that has to be done. Look at the lives of saints. Were their lives different? They were different in a certain way. They get the advantage. What advantage will there be? If I am still going to do the same things, if I am still going to speak in the same way, then what's the point of reading Advaita Vedanta? Can't I actually say cool things like, I, the universal consciousness, I am speaking to you? <laughs> no, you cannot. You should not. 
The advantage that you gain is you go beyond fear. You be, go beyond suffering. You go beyond limitation. You know that the death of the body is not my death. You know for sure, without the slightest uh, uh, hesitation, a slightest doubt, that that person is not really my enemy. That person is not really uh, against me or not really a danger to me. Nothing is a danger to me. They are all my own. Where is this person right now in my own consciousness? That which is in my own consciousness cannot be different from me. It's a manifestation of, of myself. So every person, every activity, every experience is a manifestation of the Brahman, is an ex experience in Brahman which you are. That knowledge inside will be there. External activities can very well go on being the same. You need not make a dramatic difference. I like the story of, uh, there's a story of Nisargadatta Maharaj. After his enlightenment, his experience of enlightenment, he was in a slum in Mumbai. And he decided, this is awful. And it was awful. <laughs> the slum, I mean. It still is. So he said, this is awful. I, uh, I should go and stay in the Himalayas. And he starts off towards the north. And then he stops himself in doing, saying, what am I doing? How are the Himalayas any different from this dirty slum in the middle of Mumbai? They're, they're not different. And actually they're not. It's the same Brahman. He walked back quickly and he stayed in that, that quite awful place uh, till the end of his life. In, in perfect contentment and happiness. Oh, okay. That was an example. He says that when you get jaundiced, the, the example is that. Because of the pigment in your eyes, you tend to see everything else as yellow. So similarly, uh, an enlightened person will see everything as Brahman, recognize everything as Brahman. That's an example. Yes. Important thing to learn. Even after enlightenment, the enlightened person will follow all rules of morality, ethics, common sense, decency, in action and in speech. Internally, the person is very different. The worldview, so to say, has changed completely. And then, verse number 66. Karya karanata nityam Karya karanata nityam Aste ghatamridayo Aste ghatamridor yatha Aste ghatamridor yatha Tateva shruti yukti bhyam Tateva shruti yukti bhyam Prapancha brahmano riha Prapancha brahmano riha he gives an example, ghata mridor yatha, just like the relationship between clay and pot. They're very fond of the clay and pot examples. The relationship between clay and pot is, first of all, they are one and the same thing. You cannot separate them. You should give my clay back and you can keep the pot. No, they are exactly the same thing. But what is the relationship between them? Then why do you call one a pot and one the clay? The relationship is, that clay is the material, the substance, they call it the material cause, ka, the karanam, material cause. The material out of which a thing is made. This table is made of, suppose it's made of wood or the lectern is made of wood. The lectern is the material cause, like the clay. And the, lect, the, the, the wood, sorry, the wood is the material cause uh, of that lectern. Like the clay is the material cause of the pot. In the same way, um, Brahman is the material, is the reality, is the substance of this universe. Use that example carefully. Brahman is not a thing. Clay, clay is a thing, wood is a thing. So Brahman is not a thing. But only in that sense that the reality of that lectern is the wood. The reality of the pot is the clay. So it is the material cause and the pot is the effect. Sanskrit, karanam. Karya. Whenever there is a pot, the relationship of cause and effect applies. Material cause is clay and the effect is the pot. 
really speaking, the part is a name, a form, and a function. In name, form, and function, they differ. Different parts will differ, and uh, you can use them for different purposes. You can, you, you can keep milk in the pot. You cannot keep milk in a lump of clay. So the use will still continue. When you recognize that the pot is nothing but clay, will you stop putting milk in it? No. You can still continue to use it. Usage, worldly usage continues. So the difference is in the vision that you, you thought it was a thing called a pot. Now you know it's clay. But the use, use it as a pot, call it a pot. Don't call it clay. Now that you know it's clay, don't call it clay. Now that you know it's Brahman, don't call it Brahman. But you know it's Brahman. Internally, your attitude, it's Brahman. So what the re relationship between clay and pot is exactly the relationship between Brahman and this universe. Note how we begin by separating and end up by again uh, uniting, finding the oneness. This oneness is the final teaching of non-duality. One without a second. Not separate body and mind. You see... Often there is, uh, people are misled. I am not the body, I am not the mind, I am not the intellect, I am the witness consciousness. What impression does it create in your mind? Separate. There is a world, here is a body and a mind and the intellect and beyond that I am the witness of all of this. Separate from it. If you stop there, that's also a valid point of view, but it's the, not the non-dualist point of view. This is called Sankhya philosophy. Separating consciousness from matter, purusha from prakriti. But what Advaita does is, it now next asks the question, you are the witness consciousness, fine. You have understood that. That's only step one. Now ask yourself the question, what is it that which you are witnessing? What is it? What's its relationship to you? That which you are witnessing, what's its relationship to you, the witness? Is it something separate from you? We tend to think that it's something separate. That, uh, you know, because we have a model in our mind that it's something like the light. You switch on the light, the light falls on this book and it illumines the book. The light is like the witness consciousness and the book is like the universe. So the book exists and the light exists. They're two separate things, clearly. It's not like that. It's not like that. These two are separate things, the light and the book, because, as I've said earlier, you can show them separately. Um, if you take this outside, the light will remain and there's no book. And you can see the book in some other light outside, not, even, not in this light. This light can be switched off and the book would still remain. So the two objects can be experienced separately, hence they have independent existence. Somebody is... Phone, phone, somebody's phone is... Um, you can appreciate two entities separately. That's how you know that they exist separately. This world which appears in you, the witness consciousness, can you experience the world in any other way other than your consciousness? Appreciate the question. Can the world be experienced other than consciousness? Other than in your consciousness? Can, the only way you have any kind of experience is in your consciousness. Any, any experience that we have, any of us, is in consciousness, is it not? Other than consciousness, no experience is possible. So the world which we experience cannot be experienced apart from our consciousness. So it must be something connected with our consciousness in our consciousness. That which cannot be proved to exist apart from our consciousness, what right do you have to say it is, it is something separate from your consciousness? It is not. It's an arising in our consciousness. Why even say our consciousness in, in I, the consciousness? It has no independent existence of its own. So whatever we experience is this consciousness which is called Brahman. It has no independent existence apart from Brahman. In fact, the only thing that really exists is Brahman. Swami Vivekananda you know, to, to Mary Hale in that verse exchange. Uh, she wrote in, in a poem that you have taught us everything is God. 
And she, uh, he wrote back immediately, I have never taught such strange doctrine that everything is God. She was outraged. This is exactly what you said to us. You said it again and again. Your own words, everything is God. He said, what I meant was, God alone is, everything is not. <laughs> There's a big difference. There's a big difference between the two. All of this appears in consciousness. Step one. So if it appears in consciousness, what is the relationship between those things which appear, all this universe and consciousness? I, the consciousness, pervade this universe. Pervader and pervaded. Even there you have to ask a question, in what sense? I, somebody lights incense here. The incense pervades the room. But the room is different and the incense is different. You get the fragrance of the incense throughout the room. But they are two different things. So is consciousness something like that, which pervades the room? You switch on the light and the light pervades the room. But the light and the room are two different things. In that sense, are they, are they pervaded and, uh, pervaded and pervaded? No. Then in what sense? He says, as a pot and clay. The clay pervades the pot. In what sense? Every bit of the pot. You touch it, top, bottom, inside, outside, it's the same clay. Take one more step. Whatever you touch there is the clay, not something called a pot. I'll repeat that. When you touch something in the pot, what is it? Actually you're touching clay. Pot is a name. There is no substantial reality corresponding to that name. I'm making a remarkable claim here. You say, Swami, what is that big fat round thing sitting in front of you? The pot. Yeah. It's clay. There is, show me a separate thing called a pot. There is no separate thing called a pot. There is no separate thing called a universe. As Vivekananda said, God alone is. The, the world is not. Everything is not. In that sense. Even after realizing this, everything continues to appear. But now you know everything as God. As being permeated through and through by God. Yes. Yes. So whatever appears in Brahman, it's like whole the movie appears on the screen. Can we say the screen pervades the entire movie? In a sense, yes. You know in what sense. When I say the wood pervades the the lectern, that podium, the wood pervades the podium. Actually, pervades is a manner of speaking because there's nothing there except the wood. It's the essence of it. The Atman, it's in fact, in Upanishads often called the Atman of something, the self of something, is not in the sense we use the word self. It's the essence of a thing. So the wood is the Atma of that lectern. Clay is the Atma of that pot. And the essence of it. And the singularity is all prohibited anyway. The consciousness is all, all over the place. The well, lectern, everything is subtle. The space is subtle. So if Brahman, everything appears in Brahman. Yes. Truly, space appears in Brahman. So what appears in something else, that one transcends that appearance. So Brahman is beyond space. Time is experienced in consciousness. Many people think that consciousness is experienced in time. As time progresses, our thoughts change. That thoughts are changing. But time, to experience time, you need consciousness and thought also. So consciousness transcends time. When um, in the Buddhist, the introduction to introductory prayer to Mula Madhyamaka Karika, a central text of Madhyamaka Buddhism, uh, a central text of Tibetan Buddhism also, it starts off with a prayer, just like we do a prayer here. And it it sounds very much like non-dualism. talks about the non-dual and the, the cessation of the universe. Prapanchopashamam. Even uses the word Shivam in a Buddhist text. But also something that will be puzzling to a Hindu. It uses Ashashwatam. Non-eternal. The, the Hindu text would of, of use eternal. Eternal. Nityam. Eternal. And the Buddhist text says non-eternal. What do they mean by that? 
Do they mean something that has been created and destroyed? So the ultimate, whatever they are talking about, the ultimate reality is something created and destroyed? No, 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 no. They mean exactly what we mean. But eternal and non-eternal are, are terms used in time. The normal way of understanding eternal is something that lasts for a very long period of time. Brahman is not like that because time itself exists in Brahman or appears in Brahman. Yes. So you might just as well call it non-eternal. Non-eternal there does not mean uh, something that's created and destroyed. No. Something that's beyond time. So by reasoning yukti and by the evidence of the Upanishads, Shruti, Prapancha Brahmana, the relationship in, between the universe and Brahman is the uh, same as the relationship between the clay and the pot. Remember, the Bra Brahman is like the clay and the universe is like the pot, not the other way around. Yeah. The universe is an appearance in Brahman, just like the pot is an appearance in clay. Let's do... 67 Grihyamane ghate yadvan Grihyamane ghate yadvan Mrittikayati vaibalat Mrittikayati vaibalat Vikshamane prapanchepi Vikshamane prapanchepi Brahmeva bhati bhasuram Brahmeva bhati bhasuram Beautiful, powerful verse. What does it mean? It means Hold on to the pot. We are using it again. When you experience a pot. When you see a pot, you are seeing the clay helplessly. You have no choice about it. Right? If you see the pot, what do we do? When we touch a wooden table, what do we say? Touch wood? Because we are touching wood actually. We know that. When you're seeing the pot, actually what, what are your eyes coming in contact with? The clay. You cannot avoid the clay. Because that's all that there is. So when you see the pot, you helplessly see the clay, the material out of which it is made. When you touch a pot, you helplessly, choicelessly touch the clay itself because there's nothing else to touch there. So when we see another person, we helplessly see Yes, that's the, the great conclusion. The second line is so beautiful. Vikshamane prapanche api. In this universe, when you... Uh, experience the universe. The words used are so powerful, little thrilling. Brahmeva bhati bhasuram. It is Brahman alone blazing forth. Blazing forth. Abhati bhasuram. Like light shining forth. But vikshamane is an interesting word. It's not a simple word like seeing. It means. Um, Seeing through inquiry. Seeing through the eyes of inquiry. Seeing through the eyes of this book. Seeing through the eyes of non-dualism. Through the eye of knowledge. Vikshaman. Vikshaman normally means inquiry. When you inquire into this world or look at it through the eyes of knowledge, God blazes forth unmistakably. Is nothing but awareness, pure awareness, pure existence, pure consciousness, all the time. Just as the pot, whatever you do with it, keep it, store water or milk in it, whatever it you're doing with it, it's, it's just clay. Whenever you're experiencing it. In the same way, whatever you do with this world, you're happy in this world, you're happy with Brahman, in, in Brahman. Brahman is shining forth. In your unhappiness, Brahman is shining forth. The very experience of happiness and unhappiness, Brahman is shining forth in both. That's why enlightened persons have this peculiar quality, which is mentioned again and again in the Gita, samadrishtitvam or samadarshitvam. It is un sort of un unhappily translated in, in English as 
same sightedness sounds like an ocular defect like near sighted or far sighted it means yeah equal opportunity it 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 it, it means Yesterday, I was at uh, the um, French Cultural Affairs Consulate on uh, 79th and 5th. And there was a conversation between Rosalind Morris, who is a social anthropology in Columbia University, and Gayatri Chakravarti Spivak, who's a very well-known professor of, um, of, of many things, many things post, post-modernism, post-colonial uh, theory. And so... And, uh, and Rosalind, in fact, made an uh, interesting remark. She says, in our modern society, it is, it's characterized as uh, you have an equal opportunity to inequality, <laughs> which is a very perceptive statement. So anyway, back to our point here. <laughs> in every experience, the same Brahman shines forth in the pleasant and the unpleasant, in the waking and the dreaming and the deep sleep, in what you like, what you dislike, in life and in death, it is Brahman alone shining forth. You say, good for Brahman, what about me? You are that Brahman. Brahman alone shining forth, it's none other than consciousness and you are that consciousness. This is the great claim that is made. You say, so, if you see it that way, if you know it that way, if you're established in that knowledge, you go beyond fear. When um, the great emperor became enlightened, what did he attain? His guru tells him, Abhayam vai prapto si janaka. You have reached fearlessness. No longer is there any fear left in this universe for you. Nothing can make you afraid. Biggest fear is death. We are not mortal creatures. The body will die. The body will age and die. It is nothing to you. Nothing to you. It's a blink in the eternity of time. And time itself is a plaything to you. To you con who are consciousness. One monk in the Himalayas once chanted very thrillingly. We are sitting in his ashram. Surrounded by these towering snow peaks. Glaciers running down. Forests all around. And he chanted to me something his guru had told him. He was not very scholarly. So his guru had said, you find God with eyes open. Don't have to go through a lot of Vedanta. He quoted two things. One from Kabir, Kule nain dekhu sahabko. With open eyes I perceive my Lord. What, is, what do you perceive with your open eyes? His guru told him, you will see Brahman in the Himalayas and the Ganges, the river Ganges. And so he quoted the second thing from the Vedas to me. Pashya Devasya Kavyam Yona Jiryati Namamara Look upon the poetry of the, of the infinite. Uh, Deva here is the infinite consciousness. Look upon the poetry of the infinite consciousness which neither decays nor dies. What is the poetry? The universe. The universe itself is the poetry of, of God. That one step People love nature, especially in our modern world, especially in the West. People love nature, can appreciate nature. If you take one more step, find the spirit behind nature. One day, I think it was Nivedita, who was standing on the ship, looking out on the beauty of the Mediterranean Sea, and the moonlight playing on the waves, and he, she said to Swamiji, Swami Vivekananda was on the same ship, how beautiful it is. And Swami Vivekananda said, yes, and how much more beautiful is that self? That, that consciousness, the Atman, in which all this beauty appears. You, how much more beautiful you are. You lend your beauty to the, the Mediterranean and, and the moonlight and the ocean. All of it is borrowed from you. In Sanskrit there is a phrase, there is a metaphor which is used, Yachita Mandana Nyaya. It's a, it's a kind of analogy that's used actually. What it means is, um, jewelry that is borrowed. Two sisters, one who was not very well off, so when she went to a fair where you need to dress up, she borrowed jewels from her rich sister. And she decorated herself with it and went to the fair and came back and then returned it. Yachita means asking. 
praying for. And mandana means decorating yourself. Then you return it. Then, then she returned it to her sister. So they, were not, they did not belong to her. The universe borrows from you. What does it borrow? It borrows, first of all, um, consciousness, existence, sat. It's very being. It cannot exist without you. Like, like a dream. Nothing in the dream can exist without you, the dreamer. It's the dreamer's existence, which is all the people in the dream, all the things in the dream, all the happenings, good and bad in the dream. It's your existence. And you give it light. You give it consciousness. Then only experience. It's not a dead existence. It's an alive existence. This entire universe. Yeah. So you give it, it borrows sentience from you, it borrows existence from you, and most of all, it borrows joy from you. Ananda. It borrows Sat, Chit, Ananda. But, because it is borrowed, it has to be returned. Hence the existence that the universe borrows from you is returned. Hence in the universe, things are born and death is certain. In the Gita, it is said, death is certain for those that are born and birth for those that die. All the things in the universe, they are born and they die. They do not exist for eternity. Why? Because their existence is borrowed. But the one from which it is borrowed, that one is eternal. That one is beyond time. Who is that one? You. Consciousness in the universe. You have more knowledge and less knowledge. Our knowledge is limited. We try to understand. We cannot understand. We learn and we forget. We experience in slices of time. Through our eyes, ears, in little, uh, through instruments of um, knowledge. Our epistemological instruments. Eyes, ears, tongue and nose and taste. And thought and understanding and intellect. Through these media we channel consciousness. But the infinite consciousness is at the back of all knowledge. And that's borrowed from, consciousness is borrowed from that. That which is borrowed, the source itself is infinite. It's not limited knowledge. And ananda, bliss, is a world of misery and suffering with glimmerings of joy which people chase all the time. But those glimmerings of joy are borrowed from you. They are your own bliss reflected back by the world to you and in tempting you. It's all borrowed. Existence is borrowed, awareness is borrowed by the world and joy or bliss is borrowed by the world. All of it is in, in infinity is available within each of us. That one existence, consciousness, bliss. So, to an enlightened person, Brahmevabhati Bhasuram, Brahman alone blazes forth. Abhati appears, Bhasuram blazing forth. Does the enlightened person have to make an effort to remain conscious of God? No, it's effortless. Does the enlightened person always think about God? Not necessarily. The enlightened person may just be walking, talking and cooking and doing things. The Holy Mother, she was asked, are you always aware of your real nature? Of course, in her case, there's an extra dimension, being an avatar. But, but let's take it in a non-dual sense, in the sense of an enlightened person. Are you always aware of your real nature? She said, my child, uh, how could I go on working if, if, that, were, if that were the case? But... It's always available to me whenever I want it. It's always available to me. A place of security, rest, eternal peace, continuously available to us. Especially when in times of trouble we need it. When it hurts. Physically, emotionally, socially. When there is pain and suffering and struggle and fear and anxiety. Then this is available to us. We know this is the reality. Compared to that. This world, Vivekananda called it the game of puppies. It's cute. Even what we might normally think terrifying. Then, 68. Sadevatma Vishuddhosti Sadevatma Vishuddhosti Yashuddho Bhati Vaisada Yashuddho Bhati Vaisada 
The Atman, your real nature, ever pure, but appears to be impure. Just as a rope appears in two ways, to the knowledgeable one, enlightened person, and to the ignorant person. Two ways means a classic rope snake example. To the person who does not know it's a rope and thinks it's a snake, the same rope appears as a snake and its effect is what? Fear, anxiety, terror. And to the person who knows that it's a rope, to that person, what is the effect? No fear. In the same way, Brahman appears as prapancha, universe, is a place of anxiety and terror and temptation and the prospect of sure death. We are haunted by death. And say, no, I don't think about it. Becker, Ernest Becker, who wrote the book, The Denial of Death. I think he got a Pulitzer for it, probably. Um, um, he got some award for it. He says, we are haunted by death. And he was a psychoanalyst. So if you say something like, no, I don't think about death, you are in for it. The psychoanalyst will say, you're suppressing it. You are more haunted by death than anybody else. <laughs> and he says that in the book. We are haunted by death. That haunting goes away when you see the world for what it is. It is none, nothing other than yourself. And the real you, there's no question of death for the real you. So, Vishuddha, it is pure from the effects of karma. We think we are bound by the effects of karma. I have impure thoughts. I have so many passions and desires. I have dislikes and prejudice, prejudices and hatreds. Um, I have distortions in my ways of thinking. All these impurities are in me. The ignorant one thinks like that. Why? Because the ignorant one is identified with body-mind. And the enlightened one, the same thing, this is the important thing, the same rope appears as the snake and as the rope. But both are not equal realities. The snake, snake is false. It's a superimposed, in Sanskrit, adhyasta, it's not real. It's the same reality which is recognized as existence consciousness bliss by the enlightened person. The non-dualist, will, Advaitin will call it Brahman, the Tibetan Buddhist will call it the Shunyam, the clear light of the void, whatever. The devotee will call it God. And the, the person, the worldly person calls it, oh, the world and me. And a continuous tension. I am impure. An enlightened person says, I always, I was pure and always am pure. Untouched. The purity, my, my, my natural purity is untouched. I won't go any further today. If you have any comments, questions, we can take one or two. Yes. So, uh, the ecstatic bliss Nivedita was experiencing by observing the night, how can we make every moment like that? Ah, it's a good question. That's the temptation. See, the question was that the bliss which Nivedita sees by seeing the ocean, beautiful ocean, how can I get that that Ecstasy. She got that ecstasy in nature. You know, the derivation of the word ecstasy, it leads you straight to uh, Vedanta. It is stepping beyond, ex, stepping beyond the self, the, 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 the lower self, yes, expanding beyond it. So how the temptation is, it's intense, it's beautiful. There are few moments of great joy and peace and which we remember all our lives. There are. We, we, we all have had some pleasure and peace and fulfillment lasting just those precious few seconds. Can I have it continuously? And they call it a permanent high. <laughs> Somebody said um, about meditation. You, you can get high without drugs on meditation and it has the Ad, added advantage of th that the well, the phrase was the fuzz can't bust you <laughs> the, 
the police that means the police can't catch you the first can't can't bust you because meditation is not illegal now the question is can we have um, this extreme bliss all of our lives it seems like a tremendous promise what do you think Yes, it's all. One answer is always there, but then the doubt will be where I don't feel it. Uh, the question answer might be yeah, you will feel it when you're enlightened. But those who are enlightened, Brahma Gyanis, do they always seem to be in you know, continuously thrilled and in bliss? You can clearly see that they go through. They have those waves of ecstasies and blisses, and there are ups and downs. There are changes. So what's the, you know, as they will say, what's the deal here? You know what happens is this. The question you are asking is, the best way of answering that is, yes, to fulfill all your dreams, yes, you can have it, but not in the way you think. When you are enlightened, when we are enlightened, you wouldn't even want that. You know that experience of intense joy in the mind. You know what it's like? It's like looking at your face in the mirror. Follow this carefully. Looking at your face in the mirror. When you look at your face in the mirror, two things are, there are two things there. One is, it's not your real face, it's a reflected face. Your real face is here. But what's the advantage of the reflected face? You can You can see it. The reflected face can be seen. Depending on the mirror, if it's cracked and broken and dusty, can't see it properly. If it is concave or convex, you see it in a distorted way. If it's a nice and shiny mirror, you see it quite well. If it's a platinum mirror and something, you see it really, really well. But all the time, remember two things. It's not your real face. Second, it... um, Okay, there are a number of features there. One, it's not your real face. Understood? Why? You see, it's my face. Whose face is it? It's not your real face. If it was your real face, what's this? Yeah, that too is my real face and that's my real face. So you have got two face. You're two-faced? No, you have only one face and that's reflected there. That's a reflected face, a reflection of your face. Number one, that's not, uh, note these points. That's not your real face. Understood? Second, that reflection comes and goes. Correct? Depending on the mirror coming and going. If there's a mirror, reflection will be there. No mirror, reflection will not be there. That reflection is subject to gradation. Better reflection, best reflection, not so good, worse reflection, no reflection. Depending entirely on not your face. On the mirror. Note the fourth feature. It can be seen. It can be experienced. It can be seen. And that experience can be generated by getting a mirror. Five features. Compare, compare it to enlightenment. What happens? When an enlightened person experiences the bliss in the mind, the bliss in the mind is a reflection of Satchidananda, the Ananda, which you, the real you. The real you is reflected in the mind. The mind is the mirror. It's not the original Ananda. It's a reflection of the original Ananda. One point. Second, like the reflection which comes and goes, this ananda also comes and goes. It will come and go. Third point, it is subject to gradation. It can be more, most, less, lesser, least. It's subject to gradation. Ananda, our experience in the world, is it not subject to gradation? Even a spiritual person's joy is subject to gradation. Sometimes they get some great joy, uh, sometimes in meditation, sometimes in a darshan of a, of a, of a temple or a church, different kinds of ecstasy, sometimes listening to a bhajan, but each of them are different kinds and gradations of spiritual bliss. So, subject to gradation. Yes. And the third, fourth ex- thing is, it is an experience. Original face cannot be experienced. Reflected face can be experienced. Original ananda is not an object of experience. You, I can see people going, oh. <laughs> no, 
Original Ananda is not an object of experience, thank God. But all Ananda that we experience in life, all bliss that we experience in life is a percolation. I cannot do better than Shankaracharya. He says, there's an infinite ocean of bliss within us, the spray of which all of life will run after. It's a spray from that, a little bit, a drop from that. We are racing after it all our lives as if that's all that we want. Can, can I have that all the time? Answer is yes. And the last point is, this experience can be generated. So, an, the pure ananda, it can be experienced in certain states of mind. Those can be generated. Ramakrishna would generate it through a bhajan, through singing and kirtan, through meditation, through darshan, even a few phrases. Even somebody, I uh, read, somebody folding an umbrella. Folding an umbrella. It was enough uh, suggestion to his mind, to the mind gets in, completely folded within into Nirvikalpa Samadhi. Just somebody folds an umbrella in front of him. That's of a very high category. But all of them, they generate this intense ananda within. This tremendous unmatched bliss. Our bliss is less than the bliss of an enlightened person. The experienced bliss. The original bliss, exactly same for everybody. Enlightened and unenlightened. Now what will happen is, in conclusion I'm telling you, you ask, can I have bliss continuously? Yes, as the, the source, the ananda. Continuously you already have it. Second, you will not ask this question when you realize I am that ananda. Why? Just as, do you ever ask a question, can I always see my face in the mirror? You wouldn't want to. Because you know the original face is here. Once in a while, once in a while you might want to see the, your face in the mirror. But you would be crazy if you all, all the time you walk around seeing a face in the mirror. Because the beautiful face, it will disappear if they take a mirror away. It won't disappear. We'll have the pleasure of seeing your face. Only you don't see your own face. But in the same way, the person who knows I am Ananda has no particular urge to keep generating that Ananda in the mind. Is completely content. But that choicelessly, that ananda will sometimes come. Though every experience in the world will suggest that ananda to that person. That's why, if your question is, if I'm enlightened, will I be very happy? Yes, very, very, very happy indeed. Uh, all the time, more or less. Uh -huh. And uh, sorrow will not affect you. You will transcend sorrow. And this infinite mine of happiness, of joy, is ever open to us. When we attain this knowledge of Brahman. It's a beautiful way to end today's session. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu